Welcome to a special episode of the Three Rural White Guys podcast. Honestly, we're a little bit bummed out. This was supposed to be a really cool special about primary elections and the power of giving the party member a voice in choosing their candidate instead of the state party elites choosing them for us. We had gotten verbal commitments from all three Iowa Democratic U.S. Senate candidates, Abby Finkenhauer, Mike Franken, and Glenn Hurst, to be interviewed before the primaries of June 7th. But when the rubber hit the road, only the Franken campaign responded to our formal outreach in time for a pre-primary interview. We are pumped about the following interview with Mike Franken, but a bit bummed out that our 1,000-plus listeners, mostly from rural Iowa, won't be able to hear from each candidate on our podcast. I guess we aren't a big enough draw yet, but hey, we appreciate you, our loyal listeners. We only had a few hundred of you at this time last year, and now we are over a thousand. Regardless, we will continue to amplify the voices of rural Iowans and work to have the progressive perspective of rural Iowans represented in politics. Until that day, we hope you enjoy this interview with Admiral Mike Franken, candidate to represent Iowa in the United States Senate. We're really excited today on the podcast to have Admiral Mike Franken, candidate for U.S. Senate for the state of Iowa. Welcome, Mike. It's good to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thank you, Michael. So it's been interesting. We've seen a lot of campaign literature out there, a lot of speeches, a lot of uh, uh, clips on the news about Grassley. It seems to be all about Chuck Grassley being of a certain age, uh, maybe not being able to represent Iowa to the best of his ability anymore. And we have three really good candidates that are currently up for the primaries, for the Democratic side, all who are capable of of potentially unthroning uh, Chuck Grassley. And we are excited to have one of the front runners. Mike Franken on our show today. Um, Mike, tell us a little about yourself. I think we're super excited because you have rural roots. Is that correct? Very much so. Um, proudly to say I'm the great-grandson uh, of homesteaders, rural Sioux County. You know, those people, the giants of the earth, that their first home was carved out of uh, turf and uh, did well, scratched out an existence and became farmers, obviously, and then as, as the family got bigger and the land got less for the kids, uh, we charted off and doing other things. So my father, as the youngest of many brothers, was a World War II, a returning World War II vet, and he knew how to work with his hands. We started a machine shop. He married the uh, beautiful, charming, intelligent woman down the street who was a one-room schoolhouse teacher, and they <laughs> proceeded to have nine kids. Um, I was the Johnny-come-lately of those nine, the last one, uh, which is a good deal. Uh, very think very small house, uh, one bathroom, lot of, lots of people, machine shed that was kind of small. At, at, you know, when I was a kid, it was the biggest, biggest shed in the world, but it's actually kind of really small. Too small for most farm implements today. Most tractors can't even get in there. But he provided for his family. Uh, we were on the low fringe of the middle class, certainly, but... My mom was good at keeping us reading. So from working as a farmhand, a machinist growing up, even as an engineer for a law for a, for a law firm, three years in a slaughterhouse, took a test, got a scholarship, went off to 
colleges and a career in the United States Navy, stayed a long time, didn't know I was going to stay that long, uh, which led to 20-some moves across four continents. I was a captain of a ship, commodore of many ships, a lot of policy and strategy jobs in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the world. Um, was uh, started a defense agency and uh, did such things as you know graduate degrees and, and the like. Worked for Ted Kennedy as his first military person to ever do that sort of work. You know, so it's just a little farm kid in, in Ted Kennedy's office, which is an interesting experience. Um, nice. And then um, was Obama's chief of legislative affairs. Had a full-ranging career to include being the commander of land forces in a combat theater. So at one time, 4,000 personnel to include mostly Army and Marines, SEALs, Air Force, etc. And my domain was on the ground in a, in, a, in a situation. So I mean, it's a fabulous career, wonderful opportunity. But I stepped aside when Donald Trump was elected president. I did not care to go back to Washington, D.C. and work for him. So, um, and that was the end of my, my military career. Uh, happily to say, to say it was a real privilege, and I'm happy to say as well that I've had Iowans working in every one of my staff. Nice. Gotcha. Nice. Gotcha. nice. So I think that's an interesting transition there. You hear a lot about sort of the the military-industrial complex, or you hear a lot about uh, sort of corporate PACs that have really an undue influence on legislation, on, on what... Um, equipment gets purchased, uh, all that kind of stuff that, that really influence our senators, especially U.S. senators and, and congresspersons in general. Can you talk about that? You've had a very sort of anti-corporate PAC stance. Uh, does that relate to the military as well? Does it relate to ag being from Iowa? What's your stance on the, the influence of business and corporations on politics? Well, the, the, the defense industry has consolidated greatly. And in some areas, that was out of necessity because of the complexity of the product that they bring. But we shouldn't be doing that when it negates all types of competitive natures. And the, 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 the push that we, by our very nature, ensure that we get the best product because we're trying to beat somebody out uh, in the end game uh, as being inventive, et cetera. So in ag industry, we see a lot of that. And so, I mean, there are uh, antitrust laws on the books to preclude that, but we have a tendency to make them either diluted or we just step aside. And to call them laws is, is, rather, uh, is, is rather overstating. So in the defense industry, there is a consolidation as well. Uh, we also have where congressional members, because of the money and the jobs associated with particular industries, they step in the way of military best judgment. And we don't push against that in uniform as well as we should because of, and, and I, and having gone through the nomination process, uh, People can hold up your promotions, individual promotions, me to three-star admiral because of what I said about a particular industry or a particular system, which knocks out 600 jobs in Pennsylvania, for mm -hmm. instance. Right. So 
uh, it is a imperfect process where the checks and balances are not necessarily there. What it is that we build, like I was, I was head of this high technology task force, which looked at from full spectrum cyber to artificial intelligence, space, critical infrastructure denigration, uh, assassination, media manipulation, those things which you, know, you would think a lot of senators would like to know, which could overthrow a country by an entity or another nation. And so I had 18 of the nation's finest minds working how this may very well happen in the United States uh, and with other nations doing it. So although we, we came up with, a, I think, a series of really good solutions here and how we ought to rethink the things we buy and the things we do, not a lot of those recommendations were taken for action because they're new industries, they're a different type of industries, they're a different type of jobs, and no one wants to take away from the existing pot of work for those. So oftentimes they become additive, but that's not where we ought to go. We have a history in this country of building products that won the last war, and history shows that seldom are those the products that win the next. Right. We're seeing that pretty clearly with Russia right now and Ukraine using, you know, end of World War II <laughs> equipment in some cases, trying well, to win a war in 2022. Well, so, yeah, I mean, we can go, that's, that's a, an unfortunate, rather comic situation. But, you know, to your original question about corporate PACs in elections, you know, so, so me having this conversation with you, what does this do to a corporate entity which very well know that they're antiquated, and yet I will be a very strong voice on committee on the Hill to logically say why this we sh this is something we shouldn't do. And everybody in uniform knows exactly what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. including in the think tanks. Now, what does that corporate PAC want to do against me? They don't want me to get elected. Mm -hmm. but they're being disingenuous to the future of America, frankly. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I, st I stand against that. And strangely, the manner in which we fund elections today with the most recent rulings, uh, we are working against that. We are flooding money, dark money, in these elections. So I just, I want nothing to do with it. I want to run a campaign that has individual donations, that has a ground game that, like, like Pete Buttigieg had in the state of Iowa, where we work on rural issues. We talk to rural newspapers and rural uh, uh, radio stations, and we're relatable. That's what we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. And we don't want the cloud and the obfuscation of this dark money. Well, well, one thing I wanted to talk about along, along these lines is we, we have an economy. Mike and I were talking about this, the, talking about this this weekend. We, we have an economy in Iowa, obviously heavily reliant on corn production. And that corn ends up mainly in two areas, right, in terms of feeding hogs and then in terms of ending up in, in ethanol mixtures, those two areas are kind of shaky in terms of the future of food production, um, the future of, of confined animal operations, the future of 
ethanol. It seems Iowa leadership is doubling down on these things. But what what can a, what can an economy like Iowa? This could be relevant for a lot of other states as well. Um, once you get to the Senate, what what can an economy like Iowa do to to diversify to protect itself against some significant disruption that might occur, say, in meat production? Uh, a new technology that comes along that makes the the hog farmer uh, far less likely to survive, or um, some some new trend towards EVs, electric vehicles away from gasoline powered vehicles that really wipes out the whole uh, premise for ethanol to begin with? Well, structurally, our industry is uh, based on the on the production of meat and uh, the final products, sure. Mm-hmm. But more broadly speaking, we've created a state where so many of the hog farmers, for instance, are merely herders for uh, Brazilian and Chinese corporate structures, are they not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And or and those people who have the the, the confinements for such animals are produ- pro- providing the feed and that 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 process are working for investment entities in Boston. Mm-hmm. We have we have well separated ourselves from the owner operator of a small process, and I understand the efficiencies, but I'm not so sure efficiencies when you're talking about a, a critical national resource is what the overarching structure ought to be. It should be more resilience, and and behind the resilience is a more ecological perspective, uh, and we step aside those things. All of us know examples, and and my examples go back 40 years of watching the runoff of various CAFOs, and I'm not, I'm not condemning them, uh, but we can, we can reserve comment later, uh, dripping down into the local stream and then not really fixing itself, Uh not over a year, but over decades and I got to say this as well. I worked for a farmer in the early 70s who was a naturalist with a capital N. Hmm. And to give you an idea, before we bailed the ditches on this gravel road that he lived, we walked the ditches to make sure the quail and the pheasants had hatched and were of wow. age to get out of the way. Wow. I mean, this is the way he looked at things. Yeah. And his garage door was full of, you know, farmer of the year, future farmer of the year, uh, Iowa farmer of the year, et cetera. He was an ag major from the University of Iowa and a World War II destroyer sailor, just FYI, mm-hmm. and uh, a great guy. And he, had, he ended up having five kids and all of them went on for graduate educations and, and this little 130-acre farm. He could never survive today. Mm-hmm. Uh, his biggest tractor was a 3010. He was efficient. Uh, he was caring, he was humane, um, and he was effective. And his, his his product went to the local meat market in Sioux Center, 10, a dozen here and there. That, that world is gone, it appears. Right. And corporate, ag corporate is happy with that mm-hmm. because they were, frankly, a thorn in a greater money-making philosophy. And I, and I would say this, that the herders, uh, as in the livestock owners and the producers of row crops today, are really at the, the last 
part of the chain whose profits are pressed by deliverers, producers, processors, uh, and retailers across the dominion of the food industry. And those large corporate structures are heavily reliant on the federal government providing for a profit margin when times are in unfortunate for those producers and those livestock owners. Right. And I'm not so sure that's the industry we want in the future. So how to, how to migrate from that? We should look at energy production and in a carbon tax environment so that Iowa has an entirely different industry uh, and, a, and a goal seek that provides a different type of jobs, a different type of market, and includes and uses our topsoil for more uh, table food, straight-to-table food, in a regional production process. And that's a long conversation, perhaps longer than, than what we want to dedicate to that. But I would love to talk through it because it's all about the heat equation and the efficiencies and the marketability of your product. You kind of encapsulated what's really kind of wrong with a lot of industries in America. You have you have the producer on one end and the consumer on the other end. And generally speaking, the producer puts all their heart and soul and their effort into their product. And it's all kind of been, excuse the term, it's been bastardized by people in suits in the middle. Um, you know, you mentioned in, in farming, you have these investment groups. The same thing has happened in healthcare. It's the reason that prescription drug prices are through the roof. What's the what direction does the government need to take in getting this corporate greed under control to bring our economy back under control? Because it seems that the inflation issues and supply chain issues that we're dealing with are all a result of this middleman greed. You mean like baby food? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, it depends on the industry. Uh, and it's multivariable. It's multifaceted. Here's the interesting thing about the agriculture. I was asked to sit for a dinner one night, secret, because everybody I was meeting with were Republicans, <laughs> uh, including people I worked with growing up. <laughs> including people I, I rode the school bus with in the morning, uh, an hour each way. Uh, and they didn't want to, you know, it'd be known that they were speaking with me. But sitting at a table with 11 people, I was the 12th, the, probably the Judas in the group. And uh, interestingly, to get them to list their top three issues, and they were, they were emotional about what needed to happen. And these were, these were people, some of my friends, when they sell cattle, by George, the cattle market meter, meter uh, moves. They, they don't farm hundreds of acres. They farm thousands of acres. And some are commodity folks and buyers and row croppers, et cetera. So the whole, the, across the spectrum, they were designed to be, including bankers, to get them to list the top three issues, which we really have to go after was impossible because there were so many contrarian, overlapping, intersecting uh, bisectors that it became a free-for-all over dessert 
And I'm glad we weren't drinking more often because people were getting upset with each other. <laughs> and just so you know, the party chair for a Northwest Iowa political party, Republican, was sitting right next to me. Uh, and you know, I, I just introduced the topics and would ask the questions and settle back. And I was like, holy hell, watch the fireworks go. Because they all have a different perspective and a different market and a, and a, and a different, pardon the expression, bitch that has become the thorn in their side and is inimical to their well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all engrossed, some, all, are part of the problem in their own particular way. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then there's that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an individual farmer out there who is now plowing over his discs or his, uh, his terraces. Because you know what? That backside of the terrace, I want to plan on it. Uh, and, 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 you know, these, these terraces were put in during a time when it rained less, it rained less hard and, and yet we're denuding the, the, the use of that original terrace because the margins are so minute, they need those square meters to plant on. So this is a, this is a vexing issue, mm-hmm. right? industries you're right there's many industries that are involved in the same situation and the capitalist the capitalist perspective in America uh, is something which will haunt us because of the the craven capitalism here's a, here's a here's a funny for instance when we lived in Germany um, I was a three-star admiral and uh, kind of the big cheese on base. And my wife, consequently, would help, would would uh, give gift bags for every person coming on board the base. And in those gift bags are the normal things that she would put in. I would always put in a German-made can opener, can a hand can opener. And she, and my wife, you know, she she quit arguing with me with this and just roll her eyes. So people would kind of ask, why? What the? What's with the can opener? And it was for me to open up the discussion to say this can opener is 4.5 euro. It is the finest can opener you will ever own. Uh, its engineering is sublime and it's made in a small factory in Germany with German workers or German people who are immigrants to Germany who are living on a wage and they drive Audis and Volvos and Skodas to work. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, you cannot buy a can opener like this in America. Why? Because our form of capitalism long ago in the 70s and 80s exported that to other countries. Right. right. So so here's a question then on that note. If you are able to pull this off, you'll be the first Democratic senator since uh, Tom Harkin to represent the, the state of Iowa. I'll- is that right? I'll also be the yeah. most senior, I'll also be the most senior military officer ever elected to the U.S. Senate in right. the country. Fantastic! So you'll also have a, a two-year opportunity, assuming he stays on, to work with the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, former governor of Iowa, um, for at least two years uh, until the next presidential election. We've talked a lot about what the issues are, what the what you know the, the problems with our form of capitalism. You have two years to actually do something working with the president 
with a person you'll have a strong relationship with, obviously being a fellow Iowan and Tom Vilsack, what literally do you push for? What do you actually try to do to solve some of these issues? And I realize you can't, there's no silver bullet. There's no, like, we can just change it all at once. As you mentioned, there's all kinds of issues. But in those first two years, assuming if you beat Grassley, we're probably going to have a little bit of a blue wave in that context. Something happened and it, it reversed normal trends on, on midterm elections against the, the sitting president. And you will have taken the Senate fully and the House fully. What are you working with Tom Vilsack on and with, with Congress on and with your fellow senators on to actually try to get implemented around PACs, corporate ag, things like that, that'll make Iowa a better place for our farmers? Okay, so let's implement a proof of concept of a different business plan and use the farm bill to ensure that profit margins are maintained while this gets traction. And uh, let's, here's the short of it is, take the Salinas Valley, uh, Air, Central Valley of Arizona, out of many products, which they don't have the water to, uh, to provide to the American population anymore. And let's use our topsoil with land setting fallow in grow houses a quarter mile long, et cetera, one after another, specializing in particular uh, farm-to-table crops and use the heat of uh, corn drying, other production processes, including the generation of electricity in the state of Iowa to provide uh, heat and a carbon-rich environment for those products to grow in these grow houses. Force upon Iowa uh, an alternate means of what we used to grow, which is a wide variety of, what, 15 different crops. Mm -hmm. Even when I was a kid, barley, oats, alfalfa, et cetera, we're all over the place. Right. We need we to get you down to, uh, to Salem, Iowa, when you get a chance. It's the home of the Llewellyn House. It was the southernmost point of the, uh, in Iowa, at least, of the Underground Railroad. But the founder of that house, uh, Llewellyn is his last name, he basically started the whole fruit industry on the West Coast. He had all of his plants, all of his trees. He loaded them all up from Salem, Iowa, went on the Oregon Trail, unloaded them in Oregon, and started the whole fruit industry back in, I think it was the 1800s at some point in time. And we, you're right. We have this long, strong history of doing far more than just coin and so, corn and soybeans. And we can grow stuff here. I, I love that. I love the idea of trying doing some test runs. That's great. And the equivalency today is that Mr. Llewellyn would have kept on going through Oregon. And in Portland, he would have gotten on a ship and motored on over to China or Vietnam or Thailand or right. Myanmar and started his farm there. And the Pacific Northwest wouldn't have that product. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what we do today. Right. It's fascinating. That's really cool. Nice. We got three other things I wanted to talk about. Okay. Let's, well, let's, let's do the quick and easy one. Okay. The filibuster. Yeah. How do you feel about the filibuster? Is this something maybe we should do some carve outs for certain areas, maybe completely gone altogether, don't touch at all? What are, you, what are your feelings on the filibuster? Well, we did carve outs for um, nomination issues, mm -hmm. and that came back and haunt, haunts us to this day. Mm -hmm. 
clauses, the most partisan Supreme Court, I think, in the history of this country. One of the legacies, so just so, one, just so we all know, one of the legacies of Chuck Grassley mm-hmm. as being yeah. really the purveyor of this. Um, so, so here's the thing. We either do the process where we step down with bills. Do you have a 60-vote margin to a 57, to a 54, to a 51 and then ultimately majority rules. You use more floor time. You allow for time for deliberations, et cetera. Tom Harkin was a fan of this at one time. Uh, I mean, you can do something like that, yes. The other one is because of the stagnation today, and I grew up in a time when in Ted Kennedy's office, I walked freely between John Warner and... um, even Orrin Hatch's office, and didn't even check in the front desk. Right. We we worked things together, and we worked things behind the scenes that were absolutely effective for America in the 90s. Today, that's gone for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the trade space has really narrowed. So it has gotten so bad that if we need to step aside to get things like Roe versus Wade codified, then let's do it mm-hmm. and ensure that the democratic principles of this nation are enhanced in each succeeding election so that the the negative aspects of the Republican Party, and they are, you know, imagine, Madison Cawthorn mm-hmm. got 12,000 votes, yeah. okay? So if you think the Republican Party is far removed from being supporters of such oddities, you're wrong. Uh, then we, you know what, we need to set aside and make it happen. We had a, a, a post that we put up that was pretty damning of some people on the GOP on the right, and that got went viral, and we got a lot of people coming back at us saying, oh, we made it up. We created it on our own. <laughs> put it out there. Um, we just shared something we found. And the the challenge she brought, one of the people that, that, that texted us back about it, was like, you guys made this up. The right isn't actually like this. And I want to say to them, like, you don't live in rural Iowa then. Our neighbors just around the corner have fuck Joe Biden signs just sitting right out there, right across from the middle school. Our our, our local house of representative um, on the way to Fairfield, between Mount Pleasant and Fairfield, has his big old sign right next to an FJB sign. Mm-hmm. Like, just openly... Just they've lost all sense of decorum, all sense of properness at all. Kids in elementary schools with "Let's Go Brandon" merch, yeah. on, right? We 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 all know what that means. Yeah, in whole Iowa, which doesn't have one Christian high school, it has two. Right, um, has a F Biden sheet size flag mm. right next to one of their schools. Yeah, yeah, and it's sat there uh, in violet. For I don't know how long. There you go. Yep. yep. And just to be clear, we're not saying people don't have the right to free speech. Right. If they want to put something on their property, they are allowed to put something on their property unless it's against the law somewhere, right? That's not what we're saying here. We're saying that's the Republican Party these days. That's what they're pushing these days. And they're the ones in control of the party. They're no longer the outliers of the party like they used to be. Right. Yeah. So so how do we how do we do that was one of my my subjects the shooting that occurred and we had multiple mass shootings over the weekend but at the end of the day I look at it from from a broad perspective we're talking about extremism. We're talking about extremism in America. I don't know 
what do we what do we do? I, and again, there's I don't think there's a silver bullet, one size fits all solution here. But I, I think it's I think it'd be silly to not at least broach this subject and talk a little bit about how do we how do we handle this? It, it feels like something's broken in our society. Um, I, we were talking the other day about a book, uh, Robert Putnam has this book from the early two thousands called bowling alone. And he talks about this dramatic collapse or dramatic decline of social capital in the U S and we just don't have the bowling leagues that pull us together. The, the, the baseball leagues that pull us together. So there, there are fewer things that tie us together, fewer bonds. I I don't know where I want to go with this, but how do we, where do we go next? I mean, what, what, what are some, some ideas you might have in terms of kind of tackling this issue of extremism and, and a lack of a central kind of glue that's holding us all together in, in America? I was involved in a lot of worldwide operations for matter of fact, since 9-11, the vast majority of all named operations I was a participant in more than I care to care to list. Uh, and the the things which we say, the institutions that we create, the fences we build, the weapons that we arm ourselves in civil society with, in many countries, we would have looked at them long and hard in DOD as terrorist training camps and ideologies and methodologies that were going to cause a problem for those nations in the years to come. Right. And here's another one. There's Carol Corollary. After 9-11, we, the FBI and others, looked into the Muslim community, and I've lived in, in not one but two Muslim countries on two different continents in my life, so I'm very comfortable speaking of religions and, and, and ways of life. Uh, we, we looked into the Muslim community and asked them to police themselves, to step forward and say, who in that mosque is questionable? Or what, what policies do you have? As a matter of fact, um, I, I spent a... a a weekend with the King of Jordan in his seaside villa, uh, studying how to tamp down the the Wahhabist and the the, uh, the the more difficult aspects of Islam worldwide, so that uh, the true elements of it can come forward. Same with Christianity. So, what we should be asking the Republican Party is to start policing themselves. And, I mean, seriously, we've asked religious entities to do it, imams. Why don't we ask political leaders? And sometimes, you know, we're, we're you know, it's the pot call asking the kettle black to do something. Mm-hmm. Because let's face it, Matt Getz, and we can list a few names. Aren't they, aren't they part of the problem day in and day out, including, you know, Senator Johnson next door? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then here's the other thing. Leadership. Leadership is a big, big deal. Where's our senator as this senior person who should know better and has an opportunity to call out radical thought process, <laughs> lies? You know, in a town hall a while back, Senator, what are you doing about those patriots are in the hooskow because of the conspiring Capitol Police and the FBI captured them when they were demonstrating what's bad in this country. Okay, so here's five fallacies that were introduced. And he says, yep, we get, the judiciary needs to move a little faster. Next question. Okay, mm-hmm. now that is a step aside 
of good judgment and leadership. Yeah. I would be appalled. My mother would look at me and give me one of those downcast looks that she failed in some aspect of raising her son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a great mm-hmm. visualization, by the way. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's an excellent point. I've, I've said that several times myself is uh, every time that, that Grassley's ever been pushed on that topic, he, he wilts like a, an old flower and uh, pretty much doesn't want to answer the question. And, and I really think some of it, I mean, we've, we've heard these things, right? Like we've heard these secret recordings like Kevin McCarthy basically saying like, we're done with Trump after January 6th. But, you know, two days later, he's out there supporting him and they all go in and vote to acquit him. Dark um, money. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's that fear of of they don't they know that they have this loud extremist base, but they don't know how big it is. So they don't they they, they all just do the sidestep so that they don't offend that base because they don't know how big it is. I used to consider myself an independent uh, as a more moderate liberal. I, I look at that and just want to scream because you know, this is the biggest problem. And if the leadership in our government would just step up and call it out, it would probably eventually dissipate, but yeah. it just continues because nothing's ever said. And here's the other thing. What's the salvation of the Republican party as a result of the last 10 years? Right. How, how does it how does it become truly about the future of the next generation? I haven't seen anything that they've brought up to even think about the future. Yeah, there, there's no ideas. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. Tax cuts, tax cuts for the rich. That's it. Dark money. It's you know I took over a very a very large command in Djibouti, Africa. And I was asked by my staff when I got there, you know, of course, they want to know, hey, what strategically are you going to do differently? And I said, look at the policies which press the, the betterment of women and children in society. Proceed with those and we'll review all the others. Yeah. Because those really matter from child care to uh, uh, reproductive health to a host of it, education. Those are the things we should really concentrate on. And I don't I see a back away. I see the backsliding from those things with the Republican Party today. And those are the basics. Those are the most basic of all elemental needs. So that, that actually begs the question. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Um, the fact you're from rural instead of an urban place, the fact that you're a white man instead of a person of color. When our when our Democratic Party has started to lean very, very heavy in supporting causes around women and children and, and people of color, all proper and good and, and focused on underrepresented groups. How do you step up above the fray of the other two and say, this is I'm the one that can beat Grassley. I'm the one that can can actually win. Um, versus the other two, or maybe all three can win. I don't know. I just I'm curious. I'm, how are you approaching this versus versus Abby and versus Glenn, who's taking a very strong rural, 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 rural approach? What what sets you apart from the other two? Well, certainly, it's not fair to to, to do a compare and contrast between myself and other candidates. Uh, what's what's unique in this Senate race is this is the first time in some time when the parent parties are not choosing the winner of yeah. the of the primary. So that's unique. This is an opportunity for Iowans to choose their candidate. 
So I respect the person they choose, and I'm ever so happy. I'll be an ardent supporter of whomever they are. So that's good. Uh, Regarding my candidacy, uh, I'm, I'm unique in having a lot of experience in the legislative process, balancing industry across states, trade policies, international affairs, the needs of rural Iowa as a person from a pretty, pretty organic, pretty bootstrap existence where, uh, you know, you scratch out your and, and you do well by what what society affords you, that platform that government does, a safe environment, a good education, a good food supply and that which grows out of the garden in our case. Uh, and then, you know, you, you set about. Uh, so um, I, I, I leave it to the Iowan voters and having a Q&A discussions. And here's the other thing. There's a couple of unique characters that, that come out. And I think if you chat with me in my, my resume, uh, I've got a high degree of courage um, and uh, commitment and a high level of honor. And I believe a lot of that has been pulled from politics today. And I'm not about the, the now, I'm not about the future. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I talk from all walks of life, from what, what the goodness of unions to the value of school teachers, uh, to the person who's uh, elderly and needs to have health care. Uh, that's where, that's, those are my forts and I believe that Iowans will recognize that. That's brilliant. My last question, what would be the one thing that you think whomever comes out of the primary has to do to beat Chuck Grassley? Outwork him. Outwork him. <laughs> Love it. Quick and to the point. I appreciate mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what Iowans tend to tend to lean toward too. They show yep. you putting in the work. They trust you. Yep. Shaking the hands, talking to the people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, you got to be relatable, but you've got to be there. Mm-hmm. You can't hide behind raking in money and big donor dinners all over the place. You got to be in Sumner, Iowa. You got to be in Paulina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners who we're, we're on a zoom call right now and you obviously can't see, um, the Admiral, but, um, do you go by the Admiral or just Mike or what's, what's your preference? Whatever you guys want to do, that's okay. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, but you can't see him, but I just will share what we're experiencing here. And I think this is really important for our listeners to hear. There is this true sense of authenticity in this conversation. He's not, you, you don't see his eyes looking back for whatever talking points that he's already memorized to come mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. It's actually a conversation. Like he's, he's thinking through it as he's saying it out loud, which I know for a lot of candidates can be dangerous. I think for Trump, it was very dangerous. Um, <laughs> But w- w- this has been a very pleasant and, and really refreshing conversation because you just, you scream authenticity, Mike. And it, that's really, I think, a value we haven't seen in a lot of politicians as of late. So thank you for, for running and, and, and being yourself a, as part of this campaign. It really, um, it's just, this has been really good to hear you talk and, and get well, your perspective. I was laughing and I spilled my water on me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Truly authentic in that case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't really do talking points or anything like that. Um, I don't even. I don't even do stump speeches very well. I. I and, and here's here's a big a big fault of my candidacy, frankly. I an, I try to answer your question. Mm-hmm. 
perhaps the failing of in many in many respects of me as a, polit- a politician is I really try to answer your question. Yeah, and we feel that we feel that. So thank you for that. I think that hits our hits our time. Uh, Admiral Mike Franken, good luck with the campaign. Thank you so much for joining us here on Three Rural White Guys. So I know you have a lot of work to do and to to get to get moving. So we'll let you on your way. But thank you so much for your time today. All right, guys. See you. Okay. Take care.